This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 18, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. This week, online news editor David Grimm is here with a story on tracking silver smelting in ancient Rome by looking at ice cores from Greenland. Sarah Gurr is here to talk about her research into the rise of fungi resistant to fungicides and what it means for crops and public health. And in a bonus book segment, staff writer Jennifer Cousin Frankel talks about her review of the book Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. Now we have David Grimm, online news editor for Science. He's here with a story on looking at Greenland ice to track the activity of ancient Romans. Hi, Dave. Hey, Sarah. So that's a good intro, but can you just make the connection for us? It's not like ancient Rome conquered Greenland, right? No, not as far as we know, but the ancient Romans were big polluters, uh, oh. which we often don't think about. But they, you know, they they smelted their precious ores and clay furnaces and this to extract silver for coins and other things. And this belched a lot of lead into the sky. And what happened was that this lead traveled across the atmosphere, settled on Greenland's ice cap and mixed in with the ice there. As years go by, more and more ice mm-hmm. gets added to that. And so when researchers can take these ice cores, and it's almost a bit like tree rings, you can see these levels that have a lot of lead in them versus levels that don't. And what were they doing to make all this lead? Well, they were smelting. Okay. So they were, you know, they were extracting silver okay. um, from rocks to to obtain, you know, the, this precious metal. These clay furnaces actually released a lot of lead into the atmosphere. Gotcha. Okay. So you have these ice cores. It sounds like we're set up to look at, you know, when they were polluting. How precise could they make this data? Well, that's the thing. This is, you know, it's been known. It's been known for a while that the Romans injected a lot of lead into the atmosphere. It's been known that there is a signature of this in Greenland ice, but the precision hasn't been very good. We haven't been able to go like, oh, that's from year, you know, 200 or whatever. Oh, yeah, we should mention what year we're talking about So here. what they did here in this study is they got this 1900-year, very precise timeline that goes from about 1100 BCE to 800 CE. Not 1900 years? 1900 years. How long was the ice core? How, how deep? This ice core was about 400 meters across. That's really long. Exactly. And you need that length to get... A, the precision, but all this sort of really wide annual range as well. And so how often did they check in on the lead pollution from Romans? So, yeah. So first of all, it's pretty cool how they melted. They, you know, they take these cores and they sort of melt the ice bit by bit from one end to the other and they siphon off 
each of these melts for analysis. And they're taking about 12 measurements per year. So they're trying to get as precise as they can. And they saw this really interesting correlation between these lead spikes and what we know about Roman history. And in fact, one of the, the main authors is a Roman historian as well as an archaeologist. So what they found, for example, is during the first century CE, which is the height of the Roman Empire, they saw lead levels roughly six times higher than during the 11th century BCE, which is you know when they first started taking, uh, they first started looking at this uh, mm-hmm. this core. But then you see those things like there's this Antonine plague that hits about 165 CE that likely killed millions of people. You see this really sharp dip in lead pollution. And it remains that way for about 500 years. And they also saw dips in lead pollution that occurred during the middle of the Roman era, particularly when uh, wars erupted in Spain. So this was a this was a hot spot for smelting. I just like saying smelting. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> so. So what was really interesting is, you know, this really shows that you can really track what we know about Roman history in these ice cores that are really far away from. I wanted to ask, how can they tell that this is coming from Rome? Right. So you have some other confounding factors. For so, for example, you've got naturally occurring dust, you've got volcanic emissions, but the researchers were able to separate that out so they can just look at what's coming just specifically from Rome. And they were able to look at weather patterns as well to see which parts of the Roman Empire this lead was coming from. How do these levels of lead that we're seeing in this ice core compare with the levels of lead in the air now? So we are not doing better than the ancient Romans. In fact, even at the peak of Roman lead pollution, it was 50 times lower than the lead pollution we were pumping into the atmosphere in the 1900s during the Industrial Revolution. Mm. So the ancient Romans ain't got nothing on us. Okay, Dave, what else is on the site this week? Okay, Sarah, we've got a story about poo, how a lot of hippo feces in Africa is doing a lot of damage to aquatic ecosystems. There are 70,000 hippos in Africa, and that is a lot of poop. Also, a story about What makes a pop song a hit? Just what elements translate into chart success? And researchers have applied some mathematical analysis and broken it down. And finally, uh, for Inside Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how strictly the U.S. government should regulate lab-grown meat. Also a story about the census in the U.S., the upcoming 2020 census, which has been proving very controversial in terms of the types of questions that are going to be asked or that some people say should or shouldn't be asked. And we've got an update on that. So be sure to check out all the stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the online editor for the Science News site. You can read about these stories and more at sciencemag.org news. Stay tuned for an interview with Sarah Gurr on the rise of fungicide resistance and what it means for crops and public health. This is Resistance Week here at Science. That means there's a whole section dedicated to the rise of resistance to antibiotics, herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, and we're going to try to take on some of the big questions in resistance research these days, like how unavoidable is this? Is this something that's just going to keep happening? And should we try to use some of the same processes that cause resistance, like adaptation, to fight it? We have Sarah Gurr here to talk about her piece on the rise of fungicide resistance. Welcome, Sarah. Hello there. We worry about fungi on two fronts. It can damage crops and food, and it can also cause health problems. So let's let's talk a little bit about what's going on with farms first. What's happening uh, with fungus and crops? 
So what you can imagine is, say you were standing in a wheat field in northern America and you looked up, in the sky you might see a dark brown cloud and that brown cloud would represent perhaps 10 to the power 11 spores, so 100,000 million spores, looking at an ideal feeding ground, this genetically uniform wheat. So what's happened is that the pathogens have mutated. So they've become well adapted to feeding and they have overcome not only the inbred disease resistance genes, but of course they're beginning to also overcome the fungicides and become fungicide resistant. You're kind of pointing out the fact that the wheat aren't doing anything to adapt to what the fungi are doing. No, they can't. They're just planted. They grow from seeds. They have a single generation in a field. They produce their grain and then they're harvested. So there's no adaptation in Mm -hmm. in the, if you like, the field life of a wheat plant. Yeah. And what about human health? How is that impacted by fungi and what kind of resistance are we starting to see there? The world is very aware of the emergence of antibiotic resistance, but people haven't really thought about the emergence of antifungal resistance. But recently, what has happened on the world stage is we're seeing higher mortality levels in humans caused by fungi than ever before. And in fact, the mortality in humans now exceeds that of malaria and breast cancer and is comparable to mortality due to TB and to HIV. Are there any common names of uh, these kinds of infections that people might recognize? Yes, so all of us are carrying around candida, which sometimes becomes more unpleasant when it's thrush. And many people, particularly those who are more elderly, say over 60, are very likely to have athlete's foot. If you're immunoincompetent, unfortunately, these fungi can go internally. And therefore, at that stage, they can become quite deadly. What's happening in terms of resistance in these fungal infections? Yes, so you've got two different types of of infections or or resistance mechanisms arriving. So let's just look at plants. You've got these vast Mm -hmm. monocultures, you've got quick cyclers, and they've emerged resistance. Then you've got the human population who are immunodeficient, and they've also emerged resistance. So what is really important to point out is resistance has emerged in parallel. So we've got repeated independent evolution in different fungi. So, for example, the fungi that cause crop diseases like wheat stem rust, which is the number one killer of wheat, or rice blast, which is the number one killer of rice, are different from those that cause human infections. But there is one link, and the link is a fungus called Aspergillus fumigatus. And this lives in the soil as a saprophyte. And what's happened is we are seeing people are being infected with resistant forms of this fungus. And particularly, for example, to one fungicide or one class of fungicide known as the azoles. Just to take a pause there. So this is something that grows on, you know, plants, but it's not detrimental to plants. But then when it gets into people, it is detrimental to people? Yes, especially if it's azole resistant. And if you just look at plants for a moment, if you look at the lead chemistries, they are the azole fungicides and the strobulurin fungicides. So these are so-called single-target antifungals. So they target one particular enzyme or mechanism Mm -hmm. in a fungus. And so let's just take the azoles. So 26% of all fungicides sprayed in the world are azoles. What does that mean exactly? Does that mean that the resistance is being accumulated out in the wild on crops and then when people go to treat infections, they're not able to treat the fungus? No, I think we have to be very careful here. Mm -hmm. The data says that resistance has emerged in parallel by repeated evolution in the different fungi. 
but there is one fungus that's common between the two, which is the Aspergillus fumigatus. And at the moment, there's an, a lot of research around the world to assess the contribution of clinical and environmental selection in the resistance to fumigatus or fumigatus to see whether that's having an impact in the treatment of humans. And the answer is yes, but the data is, is still being collected. So we shouldn't have a sensationalistic story. We're just simply saying we need to be very careful about the emergence of resistance in a fungus that you find in the environment, which is also affecting human health. What are some of the proposals that have been made to address this concern? So I think we need much more awareness both by the clinicians and by the people out in agriculture looking after the crops. We ought to be more aware of integrated pest management. So we should be looking at other ways of protecting our crops, such as with more disease resistance bred into our crops, or by making sure that we understand better the need to spray less by using mixtures of different antifungals so that we mitigate the emergence of resistance. And at the same time, we need to desperately need to develop new antifungals, and particularly those that are not single target site. Is there something that should be done differently in medicine about how fungal infections are treated or how they're approached? So not only do we need good stewardship in the crops, but we also need to raise awareness with the clinicians about a portfolio of drugs that they could use to prevent emergence of resistance in human patients. Can you say something about how different this is a problem than it is with the rise of antibiotic resistance? There are many different fungi and they have different resistance mechanisms. The evidence in antibiotic resistance or antibacterial resistance is that it's transferred frequently between animals and humans via plasmids and phage and by horizontal gene transfer, which doesn't seem to occur so much in fungi. This is where it gets nightmarish. To explain. <laughs> I, well, I love horizontal gene transfer because it's how bacteria can be, they can create so much diversity in a population. Yes, yeah. and how they've also given us a mitochondria and chloroplast. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's part of our lineage as well. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But a bit of a nightmare to explain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think bacteria are a lot more eager to swap genes as needed when resistance is required, you know, under like duress, whereas fungi are doing very different things. Yes, and they also do it under different timescales because bacteria can swap their stuff every 20 minutes. Fungi yeah. can do it between five and 23 days or whatever, or a longer life cycle. And when uh, antibiotics, they tend to target a specific enzyme that's shared amongst many, many, many kinds of bacteria. And you don't see the same kind of thing in fungi? No, it's not similar because you've got these different spectrum or the different yeah. uses of the anti uh, antifungal chemistries, which target, for example, something mitochondrial or something in the plasma membrane or something in ergosterol. So like uh, the equivalent in fungi of cholesterol, ergosterol biosynthesis. So they target different things, and that's that's rather different from the bacterial story. One thing that you mentioned in your review is about how pathogens are spreading because of the movement of people and crops. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So a couple of years ago with my colleague Dan Beber, we modeled the movement of crop pests and pathogens, and we focused on fungi, showing that indeed they're moving at a, a rate of about 7.8 kilometers per year, polewards in a warming world. So in the face of climate change, the pathogens are moving with the climate change and with the crops. 
But the other problem is we're moving our crops all around the world in terms of trade and transport all of the time. And we don't have very robust biosecurity. So we don't have quarantines to check all the produce that's sold around the world. So we're mixing our populations of pathogens very quickly globally. I think the major point is that with climate change and with global trade and transport, we're mixing everything. Um, And so what we're going to see is a greater mix of pathogens all over the world moving in concert with climate change. And we really are beginning to see more fungal infections on humans. What really struck me when your story was how you could point to a specific person's ear and say, this is where we saw a really bad fungus come up. Yes, the poor chap in Japan. Yes. How is it possible? They don't normally trace it back to a, a single specific person. Well, I think they probably can't really. It's just that someone <laughs> noticed it. And because we've got genomics and everything, they yeah. noticed it was slightly different. So, for example, there's a fungus at the moment that's wiping out the frog population. And that's yeah. been traced back to Mexico. But when people began to look in, in museums at squashed frogs, they found it was there already. So it's, it's really where do you put your starting point? So right. I don't really think perhaps the... Candida aureus in the Japanese ear was the first example. It was just the one that was written down. Well, Sarah, this has been really fun. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you. Sarah Gurr is the chair in food security at the University of Exeter. Her piece on fungicide resistance is part of a special issue this week on the rise of resistance. Stay tuned for an interview with staff writer Jennifer Cousin Frankel. She talks about her book review on bad blood, secrets and lies in a Silicon Valley startup. Now we have Jennifer Cousin Frankel. She's a staff writer here at Science, and usually she writes news stories. But this week she wrote a book review. Why did you write a book review this week, Jennifer? This book is a story on a subject that fascinates me because it it hits a number of topics that I that I'm interested in. One is is medical research. Um, another is scientific fraud. This is a book about a, a major fraud that was perpetrated, and it's always really interesting to me to see you know, how that happened, what what motivated the people behind the fraud, how they fooled other people, how the truth came to light. And it's also was written by the Wall Street Journal reporter who broke the story. And I, I read a number of those articles when they came out and, you know, found them quite, quite riveting and was curious to see what he put together in this book. I read your review and, you know, you take us a little bit into the actual substance of the the crime or the scandal. I'm not sure what we're legally allowed to say here. So the alleged business. So can you, for those not familiar with the story, can you take us through the rise and fall of this company and the people involved with it? Sure. So this is a company named Theranos, and it was started in the early 2000s by a young, a then very young woman named Elizabeth Holmes, who at the time was an undergraduate at Stanford University. And she had this idea to essentially streamline and simplify blood tests. And she wanted to make it possible to conduct dozens or even hundreds of different blood tests on a single drop or a few drops, depending at which point in time we're talking about, you know, on a few drops of blood. Sounds great. And yeah, so it sounds amazing. And if if one could really do this, it, it would be transformative. But this was her her concept. She dropped out of Stanford to try and make this happen and launched this company, 
Theranos. So, so that was some time back. The problem, well, one of many problems was that accomplishing this, as often happens in science, there was a big gap right. between the vision and the, the reality. It wasn't a case that someone had started, you know, doing this research, you know, kind of found a technology that might work and then looked to commercialize it. This was a person saying, we need a test like this. They started from that point. Yes. She started with with the vision, the, the idea that she found captivating <laughs> And wanted to make it happen. Now, you know, she was about 19 years old. She wasn't a scientist herself at that time, although she had an interest in science. And she set out to make this happen. Um, And it's not clear necessarily that she set out initially to, to defraud all of these people, as ended up ultimately happening. But as time went on, the company and Elizabeth Holmes made many claims that were were fabricated. Um, They fooled investors. They brought in hundreds of millions of dollars for a test that that really never appeared to, to work, or at least not work anywhere close to the way she claimed. And there was also a real ruthlessness in how employees and ex-employees were treated at this company. And anyone who dared to question the technology, and a number of people did over time, were really shut down or fired or, or shut out or threatened with, with lawsuits. But they, they actually ended up working with this journalist who authored this book, which we should mention the title is Bad Blood. Those employees helped to, you know, expose what was going on at the company. Yes. So, you know, as often happens in in journalism, it was people who who really spoke out at risk to themselves and they were quite fearful, but they ultimately shared what was happening with John Carreyrou, the the journalist for the Wall Street Journal, and and that was what allowed him to eventually, you know, get the story and bring the truth to light. And this book is not a plain retelling of facts. That's kind of the impression I got from your review. Was it a, an enjoyable read? Yes, it really was an enjoyable read. I mean, even for, for someone like me who, who knows the story, and we all know, I mean, I think anyone picking up this book knows how the story ends, which is that Theranos falls apart, essentially, or the company is nowhere near what it was, and the truth comes out. But even knowing that, it's it's really very engrossing, because it captures the shape of this fraud. And it, it captures a very interesting tension between not just the people perpetrating it, like Holmes, but also the people who believed in her and supported her, and then those who questioned what was going on. And there's an interesting tension there, I felt as well. Can we talk a little bit about the technology that was supposedly, you know, in the works or being made by this company? What was it based on? I mean, they did manufacture something and sell it to like huge drug companies like Walgreens. Sort of. I mean, it was it was it's a little confusing what what they actually were doing and what they were doing kept changing and what they were doing was not always what they said they were doing. So I think there are a lot of pieces that are that are tough to follow. And they also changed their technology as they went along. I would say they had two main devices. Um, One was called the mini lab and one was called the Edison. Those were designed to take blood generally from a finger prick. So you, you, you only need a little bit of blood and it's much less invasive than, you know, the kind of blood test we often get in a vein. And then in some cases, the blood would be diluted so that you'd magnify the volume of blood. And that would then make it easier to conduct many different tests on a blood sample. Although it's true that they did 
deploy some of their testing machines onto patients, what they said they were doing to conduct those tests was actually not what was happening. So often they would use traditional technology, even if they said they were using the testing machines, they weren't always. I mean, there was a lot of sort of smoke and mirrors going on. And and at some points, you know, even as a reader, it was it was it's it was hard to tell what they actually had. They certainly had many scientists working at the company who were reputable scientists, but it was this sort of ever shifting technology. And what happened to, you know, the main uh, instigator of all of this, Elizabeth Holmes? Well, you know, I kind of hesitate uh, to give away my, the end of the book. <laughs> as a reader, I always find it annoying when that happens in reviews. Um, and actually, the story isn't over. You know, the, yeah. the, the, the book, the, he, he finished the book, but she is still being investigated by regulators, uh, I'll say. And, um, you know, Theranos does still exist in some form. Um, she has agreed to be barred from being an officer or director in a public company for 10 years. Well, I appreciate you keeping the podcast spoiler free. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um, the fact that this was a startup, that this had investors, do you think that the wide media coverage of this happening, you think that's going to make people a little bit more wary about investing in these kind of technologies? It's an interesting question. I mean, one thing that struck me is that some of the people who were were interested, the, 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 the investors often were not experts in medical technology. So of course, there are venture capitalists who focus, you know, their effort on medical technologies, and they Mm -hmm. may be more um, schooled in that area and what needs to happen. And there were some points in the book where some of those folks were a little more hesitant, and they weren't quite sure that this was really all it was cracked up to be. But then some other venture capitalists who who were less schooled in that area were much more enthusiastic about it. I mean, I think it's possible that it will it will have an effect. I also think that Holmes herself was unusual. I mean, she was very charismatic. She was a young woman. She had this great narrative of having dropped out of Stanford. Yeah. She was she was almost I think hypnotic in how she sold she was just a, a walking TED talk. Yes. I mean, she was very, she was unusual. It's hard to know how much to draw from this onto other cases. But yes, I think she made some very grand claims that captivated people. And it's possible that maybe folks will be more skeptical going forward. This technology that was the focus of the company, do you think that something like this is possible and that, you know, other people are other people working on making these kinds of very small blood, lots of test results in one machine or in one, you know, fell swoop? I think it's certainly an admirable goal. And I think there are other efforts ongoing um, to make our testing more efficient and to sort, certainly to do more tests on a smaller volume of blood is an right. admirable goal. And it's one that people are working towards. I think the idea of doing what Theranos wanted to do, which is, you know, I think at one point she claimed, you know, she could do 800 tests on a single drop of blood. Oh. I think that's probably, you know, maybe I'll, we never say never and maybe that that'll happen someday. Um, but I think that's that's farther off. Yeah, maybe this is like sci-fi and will lead the way to, right. to a real technology. <laughs> exactly. Okay, Jennifer, thank you so much. Thank you. Jennifer Cousin Frankel is a staff writer for science. She reviews bad blood, secrets, and lies in a Silicon Valley startup this week in the magazine. 
And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can visit our site to listen and read about the research and news stories discussed in each episode. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. This show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.